Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. This is another podcast of World Wide Wave, the international LGBT news and current affairs show, every week on Australia's first LGBT radio station, Joy 94.9. We're talking today about Indonesia's uh, new or coming criminal code. The largest coverage seems to be around the criminalisation of consensual sex outside of marriage and cohabitation between unmarried couples. Give us a bit of an idea about what this means for LGBT people. There are two provisions in the new criminal code that have caused international controversy. One of them punishes extramarital sex with up to a year in prison, and the other says that couples who live together without being legally married can also be jailed. And, of course, there have been widespread fears expressed that unmarried foreign couples visiting Bali in particular, which is, of course, a favourite tourist destination for Australians. Before COVID, about 1.2 million Australians went there every year, and something like one in five Australians has been there, Um, lots of them obviously more than once. There are fears that, that unmarried foreign couples, including Australians, visiting Bali and other parts of Indonesia might well be targeted. However, it's actually not as dangerous as it might seem. First of all, these two offences are what are called in Indonesia complaint offences. And that means they can't apply unless a close member of the family, and specifically they're listed in the law itself, a husband, a wife, a parent or a child, report the matter to the police. That makes it really pretty unlikely that the new provisions would be deployed against an unmarried foreign tourist couple because it would require their Australian family to report them to the authorities in Indonesia. I mean, I suppose it's not impossible, but it's extremely unlikely. However, it is possible that if a foreigner, an Australian visiting Bali, for example, is in a relationship that doesn't involve marriage or is living with an Indonesian partner, then if that Indonesian partner's family reports them, then the police could act. But if nobody reports them, then the police cannot act, even if the relationship is blatant and in front of them. They can't take a step unless that complaint is lodged. Now, there's a lot of concern in Indonesia about the impact of these provisions on Indonesians. We're looking at it from a foreign perspective, and that's obvious because we are not Indonesian. But in Indonesia itself, there has been a lot of concern expressed about these provisions, particularly by young people. There's a concern that they allow families to use police and courts to enforce their views about sexuality and choice of partner. And when it comes to sexuality, it's also feared that this new law will particularly be used to target gay and lesbian people because gay and lesbian people cannot legally marry under Indonesian law. Homosexuality is not illegal in Indonesia except in one part of Indonesia, which is the eastern province of Aceh. That's the only place in Indonesia where Sharia law can legally be applied in its own right. And 
in that province laws have been passed that make homosexuality a criminal offence. But outside Aceh, homosexuality is not illegal. However, obviously, because gay and lesbian people cannot marry legally, the effect of these provisions is to make their relationships a criminal offence if a member of their family reports it. So opponents of this new criminal code say that these provisions really criminalise gay and lesbian people by stealth because they are the only Indonesian people who cannot actually marry. From a legal viewpoint, doesn't that present a problem in that, you know, the law says homosexuality is not illegal, but this is really saying it is? Yeah, that's right. It, well, it certainly, what it does do, it doesn't quite say that, but it certainly allows members of gay and lesbian people's families who object to their sexuality or their relationships to turn their identity into a criminal offence by reporting them to the police. There is an explanatory memorandum that comes with the criminal code and it includes a list of relationships that specifically breach the ban on extramarital sex. And all of the ones listed there are heterosexual but that explanatory memorandum is only a guide and authorities can quite easily expand the definition of an illegal sexual relationship to encompass gay and lesbian people simply because they can't marry. Gay and lesbian people are also likely to be targeted under another provision that prohibits now indecent acts. Indecent acts are, are not properly defined in the legislation and they would very likely catch public acts of affection between people of the same gender. So while international attention is, is focused on the threat to tourist couples travelling to Indonesia, actually I think what's far more concerning is that threat this places or directs at LGBTQI people in Indonesia, Indonesian people who are not heterosexual. And what about sex workers? This effectively makes their work illegal and certainly opens them up to ongoing persecution from police. Yeah, it, absolutely it does. Um, but again, it requires a member of their family and specifically the, the sex worker's husband, wife, parent or child to report that to the police. I mean, I, I think it's perhaps less likely to be used against sex workers, although you can certainly see circumstances where that could happen. But you can see it more likely happening where members of a family object to their child or parents or spouse's sexuality and use this provision to punish them. This concession whereby it's got to be somebody close to make the report, that's kind of been presented in international media as a softening of the law. Isn't it really a kind of morality self-censorship where you know, it's the families that are doing the enforcing? Yeah, I mean, it does. It, it it gives authority to families to enforce their interpretation of sexuality and identity on members of their family. But it is true that it is a softening because it does protect people from persecution by the police. And there has been a lot of persecution of gay men in particular in Indonesia by the police at bathhouses and so forth in Jakarta. There have been police raids where men have been arrested for what's called in Indonesia porno aksi or pornographic actions. That is basically public displays of sexuality, nudity, erotic behaviour. Uh, it's very vague and undefined term, but police have used those provisions in the Anti-Pornography Act 
to persecute gay men in particular in, in the big cities, including Jakarta. So there has been a history of police using these vague and ill-defined terms to target gay men. A lot of this is actually extortion, which is very common uh, in criminal law enforcement in Indonesia, police using their powers to extort money from people in vulnerable positions. So at least these provisions prevent that from happening. You have to have a family member to trigger it. And uh, some of the other loose interpretations that are within the law, um, one that sort of gained interest from LGBT activists, says the government will recognise any living law within the country. And a number of legal experts have interpreted this as the ability to extend local Sharia laws or regulations across the country. And this is anything from um, curfews to women, mandatory hijab dress codes, uh, and targeting of, you know, so-called deviant sexualities. What's your take on that? Yeah, this is a highly problematic provision of the new code, which allows, quote, the law living in the community, unquote, to be applied to make an act a crime, even if it's not actually written in the code. And this is understood to mean traditional customary laws. And these vary widely from place to place across Indonesia. Indonesia has about 20 major ethnic groups, and these ethnic groups are uh, cultures of their own with their own first languages and so forth. And even those communities can be broken down and again, in some, some claim around 200 different groups. So there is a huge amount of cultural variation, linguistic variation, ethnic variation, across Indonesia, one of the most diverse places in the world. And the customary behaviour of those communities, very ancient in some cases, vary enormously, but they are often quite conservative, particularly on moral and sexual issues and reflect traditional values and, in many cases, Islamic values. So if law living in communities is recognised as a source of law that courts can enforce under this new code, that creates huge uncertainty about what is permitted and what is not permitted, changing from place to place, culture to culture as you go across Indonesia. And this really has been criticised by law reformers and, and lawyers, legal scholars and so forth, for creating a whole new body of unpredictable and uncertain law, which many of them expect will be used to impose quite conservative moral values. This has happened in the past. There have been sexual and moral ideas coming from traditional community values that courts have occasionally enforced in the past, for example, breach of promise and so forth. But this is a much, a huge extension of these ideas, which is quite threatening because it's so unclear what the outcome will be. However, there have already been quite significant attempts across Indonesia to implement conservative interpretations of sexuality, particularly drawn from conservative interpretations of Islamic law or Sharia in regional regulations across Indonesia. The decentralization that followed, followed the fall of Suharto in 1998 handed down powers to provincial, sub-provincial and village levels to pass their own laws, powers they didn't previously have. And in many places, local governments have used those powers to already impose these sorts of conservative norms based on religious values in their particular area. Um, the difference is this, that those laws, many of them applying conservative ideas about sexual behaviour, about marriage, about clothing and so forth, 
are set out in laws and regulations which have to be passed properly by a local government. What this would do is effectively allow people to be charged with an offence that doesn't appear anywhere in the code itself. So we'll wait and see whether this provision actually survives and is implemented and what form it will take, because I think it creates huge legal problems if it is ever implemented in its current form. Now, the LGBT community are not the only ones concerned with the revised criminal code. There's a number of threats to women's rights in the laws as well regarding um, not just cohabitation outside of marriage and sexual relations, but also to do with abortion. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, the code contains provisions that sense the dissemination of information about contraception, uh, even explaining how to obtain it. There are some exceptions for family planning, but the provision clearly limits women's freedom to choose. And it would be quite a significant change in Indonesia where information on contraception and condoms and so forth are very widely available. Uh, This is an attempt to reverse that. Indonesia has been well known for its success in promoting family planning in the past. And so contraception is quite a common thing in Indonesia, commonly used across the country. This this would make that a lot more difficult. It would be a quite significant change. Um, There are other provisions that impose a four-year sentence on a woman who has an abortion and even longer terms of jail for those who perform the abortions. There are some exceptions for rape victims and for medical emergencies, but this is still a a real harshening of the law on abortion in Indonesia. Abortion has always been problematic because of Islamic religious attitudes towards it, but this um, firms up the situation. Those restrictions on the dissemination of information about contraception, would that also affect the ability to deliver HIV programs? It it might. Um, it's hard to say at the moment. And this, this brings up another wider issue about these laws, and that is that if you are planning to go to Indonesia now, you shouldn't be worried about it. And there is going to be some time before the provisions of this new criminal code are actually implemented. The law itself states that it will not come into force for three years, which is quite a long time. And in that time, implementing regulations are required to provide detail of the provisions of the code and how they're actually going to be implemented. What that means is that we really have to wait now for another three years to see what the government says in more detail about these regulations the implementing regulations, what they will actually say to understand the real impact it's going to have. That three-year gap is um, a a breather, I suppose, before the law comes into effect, but it also creates an opportunity for opponents of the law to start lobbying politicians and the government law enforcement agencies and so forth to modify the impact of the law, maybe even to alter some of the provisions before it comes into force. Tim, is that a usual process? Because that that does seem like a long time and we've got a presidential election in Indonesia next year. You know, a cynic might say that that's kicking things down the road for the next leader. Um, Very likely, yes. I think this code has to be understood in its political context. There have been debates in Indonesia about introducing a a new criminal code for decades, going right back into the 1960s. Criminal law touches on almost every aspect of 
life, private and public. It controls morality. It controls the distribution of wealth, even in societies. And so it's been extremely difficult to reach a consensus on a new criminal code in a country as diverse as Indonesia. Every time there's been an attempt to pass a new code, it's resulted in opposition. And in fact, a few years ago, when they tried to pass this law, it resulted in the largest public demonstrations since the fall of Suharto in 1998. The question is, how has this been passed now and why was it passed so quickly? The most logical explanation is that it's really got a lot to do with the hugely important presidential and legislative elections that are scheduled for February next year. Um, president Jokowi's at the end of his second term. He can't run again. So there'll be a new president early next year. And the elections will result in a major recalibration of power and wealth across Indonesia that will last for five, maybe even 10 years. So while 2024 may seem a while away, certainly in November when this law was passed, in Indonesian political terms, that's pretty close. And politicians have been jostling for position and advantage. And in a democracy, issues of religion and morality can play a very important part in closely fought democratic electoral contests. So really what this is about is about politicians ramming this law through at high speed so they can claim a sort of law and order success where others have failed for decades and so they can assert the sort of conservative morality, so-called family values, that they think will resonate with voters. And as to the impact, well, they don't need to worry about that. That's for the new parliament. It's three years off. The new president and the new government that comes in will have to deal with it. So I think this was a quick and easy pre-election fix for outgoing politicians who are facing a very major election early next year. Unfortunately, that means that we're probably going to be fighting through the consequences of this for ordinary people for years to come. It did pass, though, with an overwhelming majority and, you know, support from virtually every party. What does that tell us about the influence of religious conservatism on Indonesia's parliament? There's no doubt that Indonesia has been shifting towards more conservative attitudes towards religion and Islam in particular over the last 20 years or so, um, and that there have been a degree of rising intolerance among Indonesia's mainstream Muslims. However, conservative Islamist groups are not a significant political player in Indonesia in the sense that they don't get elected into the national legislature. It's Islamist political parties have never been able to win a majority in Indonesia. In fact, their vote has been falling in recent years and they are a very small minority within the legislature and within politics. The Muslim parties that do get some support tend to be more mainstream, certainly not conservative hardliner groups. However, this is not really about the fact that Indonesia is becoming a, a more Sharia-oriented society. It's about politicians jostling for advantage in electoral contests. And we see religious parties that get very little support in Australia winning a degree of influence by sitting on crossbenches and having a deciding vote. We see family values being used by politicians as we come into elections. We see a Christian country, nominally speaking at least, where uh, most people don't vote for Christian groups. And the same is true in Indonesia in the sense that whilst conservative Islamist parties have very little electoral traction, these issues come into play at election time when politicians believe it will give them an edge over their competitors in some really expensive, tightly fought electoral campaigns. I think that's really what it's about. 
evidence of this is the fact that the laws passed at the local level across Indonesia, village and sub-provincial and provincial governments that contain conservative Islamic norms about sexuality, clothing, about the place of women, most of them have not been passed by members of Muslim political parties, but by members of uh, nationalist and secular political parties. So why do nationalist and secular politicians pass Islamizing laws? Precisely because they want to get electoral cred with Muslims. In other words, this is not really about the Islamizing of the political process in Indonesia. It's about getting an advantage in elections. And I think this law is passed now precisely because we've got a very important election next year. I just want to touch on the other big risk that's been raised with these laws, which is all around freedom of speech concerns. There's bans for insulting the president or public officials, blasphemy, um, you can't spread views counter to state ideology, restrictions on protesting. What do you see the effect, if these come in in full, what do you see the effect as being on freedom of speech? Yeah, I think I think this is as much a concern as the moral and sexual provisions in this law. This is a regressive law that empowers the government to intervene, to censor its critics and to silence them. And I don't think there's any question that it will have a chilling effect on opponents and critics of the government in the years ahead. The comment I just made that it's regressive is really illustrated by the fact that laws that criminalise the insulting of public officials, including the president, members of the government and others, these provisions had previously existed in the old criminal code and they were struck out by Indonesia's constitutional court on the grounds that they were contrary to the rights of freedom of expression and so forth in the constitution. Now, what the government's done in this code is ignored that and simply reinstated those provisions flying in the face of the constitutional court's ruling. And this is a, a pretty pretty blatant attempt to control its critics and opponents and has real potential to restrict freedom of expression and association, especially when you view this in the context of prohibitions on protest and demonstration without prior notice, the provisions that criminalise teachings that contradict the state ideology of Panchasila, and prohibitions on so-called fake news or excessive news that are very, very broadly expressed and not really defined that would give government power to punish members of the media for publishing what it calls fake news. So these are these are sort of the sort of provisions you'd expect to see in an authoritarian country. Indonesia is a democratic system in the sense that it runs elections and public positions are chosen by what are generally regarded as pretty free and fair elections. However, it is definitely sliding backwards from being a liberal democratic system that is one in which human rights are strongly protected. Its aspirations to liberal democracy are clear from its constitution, but most observers of Indonesia would agree that it has been in a state of democratic regression over the last 10 years under President Jokowi, and this criminal code would confirm that. There is one good thing in the new code, and that is it sets a 10-year probationary period for death sentences. And this means that if the judges insert this into a death sentence, it gives the person on death row a chance to demonstrate good behaviour over a 10-year period and to show remorse, etc. And if they do that, then the uh, death penalty can be remitted to a term of imprisonment 
Now, that is a, a very important reform. It means that, for example, um, the Bali Nine members, Moeran Sukumaran and Andrew Chan, who were executed, would probably have been able to avoid the firing squad if this provision had been in the law at the time they were sentenced and they'd received this opportunity. And it picks up a proposal made by Indonesia's constitutional court in the past to introduce this sort of probationary period. So uh, that's probably one of the very few parts in the code that is good because it suggests Indonesia may be willing to step back from its aggressive application of the death penalty under President Jokowi, who has used death for drug offenders as a sort of core legitimising factor of his presidency. That's been highly problematic for Indonesia domestically and internationally. Indonesia's jails are crammed over half the prison population's appears to be drug offenders and death row is full of drug offenders and this is a policy that's clearly not working. This does suggest the possibility of some modification of that in the years ahead. And it will probably garner some support from the likes of the Australian government as well. Well, hopefully that's the case, yeah. You mentioned last time they sort of tried to bring in these major changes, there were widespread protests. There really hasn't doesn't seem to have been any local protests or, or reaction and a pretty muted international reaction as well. Why is that? Uh, it's it's difficult to explain, but I think it has a lot to do with the fact that this was rushed through at high speed, very little consultation with the public. And I think it caught civil society in Indonesia with a source of resistance to these laws by surprise. The last time they tried to do it in 2019. It did trigger huge protests. It happened at the same time that the legislature tried to pass a law that would undermine the uh, National Anti-Corruption Commission. So the two things together, the gutting of the Anti-Corruption Commission and the attempt to pass the code, took place much more slowly. There was much more time to gather opposition um, and the public protests in the end stopped the code, although they didn't stop the gutting of the Anti-Corruption Commission. This time it went through very quickly. It took civil society by surprise. They didn't have a chance to organise. And I think also many of them were intimidated by the extent to which the criminal code really targets opponents of the government, flagging a sort of a far more harsh attitude towards criticism. So I I, I don't think we should take from the absence of major demonstrations the, the idea that this code is not controversial in Indonesia. It is very controversial in Indonesia. But I think civil society has not succeeded in marshalling wide public protest. That doesn't mean they won't be working hard to try and unravel this code. This time, I think they're most likely to do it through the constitutional court because there are so many provisions in this new law that would seem to be contrary to the constitution, including, of course, the reinstatement of the provisions on insulting the president and members of government. So I think it's inevitable that this code will end up in front of the constitutional court, which does have the power to strike it out or to modify it and has been willing to do so in the past. Certainly something for us to watch over the coming three years. Tim Lindsay, the director of the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society at the University of Melbourne. Thanks so much for joining us on Worldwide Wave. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another podcast from Worldwide Wave, the show that takes you around the globe one country at a time.
World Wide Wave is the international news and current affairs show on Australia's LGBT radio station, Joy 94.9. You can listen live every Tuesday night on 94.9 FM in Melbourne and online at joy.org.au. You'll find all our podcasts at joy.org.au slash worldwidewave or follow us on Facebook for the latest international LGBT news. Search W3Joy on Facebook now. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.